Well, good morning. Welcome to Beth Adonai and Shabbat Shalom. I'm Bobby Smith, and I'm going to be your teacher this morning um, for the 10 o'clock. And uh, for those of you online that don't know me, I think everybody here does know me. So let, let's begin as we should. We're running a little bit late, so let's begin as we should with a prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the um, opportunity to be in your house on your day. Thank you for life. Thank you for bringing us through this week that we've just gone through and for um, allowing us to come into your house and study your word. Father, open our hearts and our minds so that this word may penetrate our souls. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. So, um, I'm going to be leading this for the next four weeks. And as you... Most of you know I love to do the Torah portions, so this morning we're going to do Torah portion bow, which is our Torah portion for this week. Next week we're going to do um, Tu Shivat, which is the year of the trees, and then I'll go back to the Torah portions the last two weeks for Yitro, Yitro and Mishpatim. So um, I always like to start off with the division of the Torah portion. There's always eight divisions of a Torah portion each week. The Complete Jewish Bible does a really good job of identifying those eight sections. And um, I won't cover them all right now, but that's very important to know in a Torah portion. And those eight sections represented the seven readers that would read the Torah portion in the synagogue on any given Shabbat. The um, 15th Torah portion of this Torah cycle is named Bo, Parsha Bo, which is interpreted by the various commentators as either come, you know, translated, or enter, or go. The title comes from the first words of the verse of the reading when Adonai tells Moshe and Aaron to go to Pharaoh. Some interpret, some Bible interpretations say come to Pharaoh. Let us look at some of the sources that I'm going to use. Um, these, these are my resources. And um, I've got some introductions from several, several of these resources. First, I'll give an introduction this week's, uh, to this week's Parsha from the Art Scroll Humash, or Humash. The Art Scroll Humash says this, as, the Cedra, as this Cedra begins, Cedra being another word for Torah portion, or portion, or Parsha, the climax of Moses' mission is impending. The last three plagues, the commandment to sanctify the new moon, thus laying the basis for the Jewish calendar and the festival cycle, the laws of Passover, and the sanctification of the firstborn are about to come in quick succession. Soon Pharaoh's resistance will be completely destroyed, and he personally will dash through the streets, seeking Moses and Aaron, and urging his erstwhile slaves to leave their land of bondage as soon as possible. Tim Haig has this introduction. We come now in our journey through Shemot, Exodus, to the final judgments against Egypt, culmination with the death of the firstborn. All of the plagues caused discomfort and trouble to the Egyptians, but none of them have been directed against the people themselves. Now, however, the power of God is shown against the Egyptians themselves as the firstborn is taken. The Jewish study Bible says the real point of the plagues 
is so that the Israelites, not only the Egyptians, will appreciate the Lord's power. FFOZ Torah Club 5 has this introduction. The dramatic story of the contest of the gods escalates as we continue learning in Parsha Bo. Moses and Aaron continued to wage war, a war of signs and wonders, while Pharaoh continued to harden his own heart until God began to harden it for him. A plague of locusts descended upon Egypt, turning the sky black with their sheer numbers, stripping the ground as they devoured every living piece of vegetation. A plague of darkness blotted out the lights of Egypt, creating darkness so heavy that it felt palpable. And yet in the houses of the children of Israel, light still shone. Finally, the signs and the wonders culminated with a terrible and awe-inspiring final plague that struck at the heart of Egypt, even breaking through Pharaoh's resilient pride, the plague of slaying the firstborn. FFOZ Tour Club 2 um, is Shadows of Messiah. So in that particular uh, Torah portion, uh, commentary, you hear a lot about seeing Messiah in the Torah, and they, they introduce this, this Torah portion this way. Pharaoh can be compared to Hasatan, Satan, the ruler of this present world. Just as Pharaoh held people of Israel captive, the devil holds human beings in captivity of darkness and death. He does not heed the warnings of the Lord and continually provokes the Almighty. Nevertheless, just as Pharaoh dreaded the coming of Moses, Satan fares the coming of Messiah. The sages say that the sound of the shofar confounds Satan because it reminds him that one day the Messiah will come and abolish him from the world. Moses told Pharaoh to repent of his stubbornness and obey the voice of the Lord. Yeshua, the prophet like Moses, brought the same message to the Jewish people. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeshua brings the same message to every human being. He calls upon us to turn from our sinful ways and sub submit ourselves to the authority of his Father. We are all like the stubborn Pharaoh in that we prefer to ignore the summons to repentance. Most of the people in our world do not pursue the word of God in his Torah. From his prophets and in his writings, the Tanakh, and that is also true of the message of the gospel and the apostolic scriptures. Torah Club 1 uh, does this for us. The portion begins by concluding the narrative of the ten plagues, the tenth of which is the slaying of the firstborn. To avoid the plague, the Israelites are given the instructions of the Passover sacrifice and the laws of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Pharaoh finally consents to let Israel go and leave Egypt. I always really like to read Joseph Shulam's commentary on the Torah portions. Sometimes he'll, he'll send out his email. It's always late in the week. Some, it was, it's on Thursday. And sometimes it's very um, uh, in-depth, and then sometimes he's just got a prayer list, so he goes into the Torah portion just a little bit. But this week, even though it was a little bit, he had a real powerful um, introduction. He says, this reading of the Torah contains the most dramatic event in all of biblical history. It is an event that was foretold to our father Abraham and has influenced every other event in the Torah and the prophets and even the Psalms and, and the, he says, the New Testament. In the New Testament, or the Brit Hadashah, or the Apostolic Scriptures, whichever term you want to use, we have what is called the Lord's Supper. 
Christians call it communion, that was instituted on the Passover. And we have the end, at the end of the book of Revelations that is based on Passover. If I listed all the connections and influences of the Passover in the whole Bible, a book of 700 pages would not be enough. Isn't that something? That's how important the Passover is. This is the Parsha of Passover. Exodus 10, 1 through 2 begins our Parsha this week. Adonai said to Moshe, go to Pharaoh, for I have made him and his servants hard-hearted so that I, I can demonstrate these signs of mine among them, so that you can tell your son and grandson about what I did to Egypt and about my signs that I have demonstrated among them, so that you all will know that I am Adonai. That's from the complete Jewish Bible. The first plague of the Parsha is that of the locust. It introduces a new element. God tells his people in verse 2 that he intends to make a mockery of Egypt, putting to rest the haughty presumptuous of Pharaoh and his cohorts, so that not only Egypt but even the children of Israel would know that I am Hashem. The inclusion of the Jews into that category implies that even believing people, especially believing people, are often imperfect in their faith. That Pharaoh had resisted the evidence of the divine origin of the plagues is not very surprising, really. But it seems that even the faith of the Jews, strong though it may have been, was still not perfect. In fact, it was not until the splitting of the sea later on that, he, that the Torah testified of Israel that they had faith in Hashem and in Moses, his servant. Verse 2 it's the textbook lesson for humanity that God is not an aloof creator. He's involved every day. But the master of the universe, day by day by day and event by event. The verse encapsulates this concept. For it tells Israel that the miracles of the Exodus were to teach them for all generations that God can toy with the most powerful kingdoms and that he creates the perception that he is Hashem, as the name denotes his eternity, because its letters comprise the words, he is, he will be, and he will, he, he is, he was, and he will be. Hayah, Hoveh, Yeye. Why is this night different in Exodus 10-2? God commands his people to keep an annual festival of the several ritual observances. The three festivals are the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day festival begun with a ritual meal we call the Passover Seder. The goal of the meal is to retell the story of the Exodus from Egypt to the next generation. Through ritual foods, four cups of wine, and the recitation of a traditional table liturgy called a Haggadah, the story is passed on to the children. The entire event is focused on telling the story. Perhaps this commandment is so well ingrained in Judaism, or perhaps because of, its, the, of what the commandment says, you shall teach this diligently to your sons in Deuteronomy 6-7, Judaism has understood the importance of transmitting the stories of faith to the next generation. There's a distinct difference between Judaism and Christianity with regard to passing down family rituals and stories. In the Bible, we read lineages 
of peoples and wonder why these boring details are included. There is an obvious discrepancy between the Jewish approach to passing on a spiritual heritage and the modern Christian approach. The purpose of Passover is to transmit faith to the next generation. The recitation of the stories ground us in our identity and our relationship with God. We learn who we are and how we are related to God. The rituals of the Passover Seder and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are designed to inspire curiosity. The children at the table observing the unusual foods and rites are supposed to be inspired to ask, why is this night different from all other nights? The father is to respond by telling his children, it is because of what the Lord did for me slash us when I slash we came out of Egypt. In Exodus 10.4, we hear about these locusts. The Lord warned Pharaoh that if, we, if he did not relent and allow the children of Israel to go into the wilderness to worship him, he would send a plague of locusts that would completely defoilate Egypt. Under pressure from his advisors, Pharaoh reluctantly consented to let Israel go, but not with their livestock and children. So long as the livestock and the children remained in Egypt, Pharaoh was confident that the Israelites would return. Moses was not interested in negotiating this point. So God covered Egypt with these locusts. The Lord unleashed a plague of locusts on the land of Egypt. The Torah says that there had never been so many locusts, nor will there ever be so many again. The prophecies of the book of Joel allude to the plague of the locusts and the plague of darkness against Egypt as describing the coming of the day of the Lord that will initiate the messianic era. A shofar sounds in Zion as Joel describes a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness in Joel 2.1. Joel depicts the Lord as the commander of the invading army, a great and mighty people, a force unprecedented in history and not to be repeated again. There has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be anything like it again. According to the book of Revelation, a locust-like army will afflict the earth before the coming of the Messiah. In the last days, the angels will release a strange spiritual force of eerie locust creatures under the command of Abaddon, the angel of the abyss. They rise from the abyss to plague humanity. Joel's prophecies influence the apocalyptic imagery. Oh, I was going to struggle with that. I knew it. Uh, in Exodus 10.10, we get the battle for the children. Pharaoh was willing to let the Hebrews go into the wilderness to worship the Lord for three days, so long as they did not take their children with them. He wanted the children to remain in Egypt as a surety that the Hebrews would return. In a similar way, the modern world is at war with us for our children. The secular world is not concerned about us being religious so long as we don't drag our children along with us. Public schools are eager to wring godliness out of our children and replace it with secular humanism and pluralism. Churches often unwittingly play into this game plan of separating parents from their children. The problem with segmenting a congregation into peer groups, children activities, and youth groups is that it creates a disconnected subcultures within the body. There's nothing wrong with youth groups. There's nothing wrong with, with separating us out for different reasons. 
But the thing about that Passover does is it brings everybody together, all in one, and, and nobody's excluded from it, you know, and you're all experiencing it together. Exodus 10:21, the ninth plague of Egypt was the plague of darkness. It was not normal darkness like that of an eclipse. It was a supernatural darkness, even a darkness which may be felt, as it says in Exodus 10:21. The darkness persisted for three days. Not even artificial lights such as lamps or torches could pierce the blackness. The Egyptians stayed indoors for the three-day duration, but the Israelites had light. The plague of the darkness symbolizes a defeat of the Egyptian sun god. All the plagues were directed at gods of Egypt. It also symbolized the spiritual darkness of Egypt. Though the Israelites were the slaves and the Egyptians the masters, the plague of darkness illustrates that it was the Egyptians who were in servitude. They were enslaved to the adversary and to their false gods. The tenth plague is given to us in Exodus 11.1. 1. The tenth and final stroke to befall Egypt was the dreadful plague of the slaying of the firstborn. God warned Moses that he was about to pass through the land of Egypt and strike down the firstborn of every man and beast from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the servants and the captives of Egypt. Whereas the previous plagues had only hardened Pharaoh's resolve, the tenth plague would break his heart. Pharaoh's son was the heir to the throne of Egypt. Like Pharaoh himself, he was supposed to be a god. According to the Egyptian theology, his son should not have been vulnerable to the Hebrew deity. The tenth plague symbolizes human morality and God's judgment. Every human being faces the same terrible fate. No exceptions are made on the best basis of ethnicity, status, or religious affiliation. We all die. We all face the final judgment. God himself, not an angel, would carry out this plague for two reasons. Because of his love for Israel, and since every firstborn of the males would die, only God would know their identity. That's from Orakim. Exodus 12 month or 12 1 gives us the first month. Adonai says this Adonai spoke to Moshe and Aaron in the land of Egypt. He said, You are to begin your calendar with this month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Hashem established Nisan as the first month of, for the nation of Israel. In the Bible, all months are to begin with Nisan. So when you read the first month in the Bible, wherever you read that, it's referring to Nisan. All other subsequently numbered months in the Bible count from Nisan. Teshri is the month that we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Teshri is the month of the creation of the world. Nisan is the month of the founding of Israel, the nation of Israel. There are nine of the 613 commandments in this week's Torah portion. The first is Rosh Kodesh, the sanctifying of the new moon. Judaism teaches that God has commanded Israel to sanctify the new moon. That is to declare the beginning of the new moon and determine the biblical calendar. The commandment is incumbent only upon the Sanhedrin or the illegal authority that is over Israel. 
The biblical calendar follows the lunar calendar, or the lunar, lunar cycle. The first day of the biblical month is called Rosh Kodesh, which means head of a new month. A Rosh Kodesh ordinarily occurs when the first crescent of the new moon appears in the sky, the first visible crescent of a lunar cycle, of a new lunar cycle. The biblical Rosh Kodesh is not the same as the astronomical new moon. The astronomical new moon, also known as a dark moon, occurs when the moon disappears from view at the conclusion of the lunar cycle. The biblical new moon, the Rosh Kodesh, occurs when the first crescent of the new lunar cycle appears over the western horizon in the brief period between sunset and moonset, and therefore the precise time and even the date of the appearance of the new moon varies depending upon the geographical location of whoever is observing it. The Mishnah describes a ceremony whereby the Sanhedrin used to sanctify the new moon. Witnesses who sighted the crescent of the new moon traveled immediately to the Sanhedrin. The members of the Sanhedrin cross-examined these witnesses to ensure that they had definitely seen this new moon. Then they declared, it is sanctified. They alerted the rest of the nation by means of signal fires and messengers who spread out through the land and all the way through the entire diaspora. This commandment is not incumbent upon anyone except the established and recognized leadership of the entire nation of Israel. In the days of the Exodus, that was Moses and Aaron. In the days of the apostles, it was the Sanhedrin who had this authority. Today, we don't have a Sanhedrin and we don't have a temple, but we all know when Rosh Kadesh is. In the fourth century, Rabbi Hillel II used astronomical projections and mathematical equations to create a fixed calendar that all Israel could use to keep the months and festival seasons synchronized without relying on this observation of the new moon. We still use Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel's calendar today. Until a Sanhedrin wielding civil and religious authority over all Israel convenes and alters the arrangement, the calendar of Rabbi Hillel II remains the official standard for determining the new moons, biblical months, and the biblical feast. No rabbi, leader, or group of leaders has the authority to alter what has been set in place by the leadership of Israel. If we truly believe that God's appointed times are indeed his appointments given to Israel, the new, the new moon should celebrate these appointments along, we should all celebrate these appointments along with all of Israel and own Israel's authority not independent of the greater people of God. In other words, we should not make up our own calendars. It has been given to us. And it, 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 we, we already know, based on what Rabbi Halil did, plus the way of the calendar set up, that the calendar that we have is the one that everybody follows. In Exodus 12.3, we learn about the Passover lamb. Speak to all of the assembly of Israel and say it. On the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb or a kid from his family, one per household. Except that if the household is too small for a whole lamb or kid, then he and his next door neighbor should share one, dividing it in a, in a portion to the number of people eating it. Your animal must be without defect, a male in its first year, and you may choose it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, and then the entire assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter it at dusk. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the two sides 
and the top of the doorframe at the entrance of the house in which they eat it. The first commandments God gave directly to the entire community of Israel concern the Passover. The Passover lamb and the seven days of unleavened bread. Messianic Jews note the significance. The first laws God assigned to the nation involved the Passover sacrifice, which foreshadows the death of Messiah, and the preparation for the redemption of Egypt, which foreshadows the final redemption. Before receiving any of the other commandments, the nation needed to first keep the commandments of redemption. Passover is mentioned 29 times in the Apostolic Scriptures, or the Brit Kodeshah. The instructions were simple and straightforward. On the tenth day of the month, every family was to select the unblemished lamb or goat. On the fourteenth day of the month, they were to slaughter it and to smear its blood on the doorpost of their house. The blood would be a sign. God promised to pass over the houses marked with blood. The Hebrew word Passover is Pesach. We translate that into English as Passover. The Pesach lamb was a sacrifice, but it was not a sacrifice for sin. In discussing the Passover lamb, the Torah does not mention anything about sin, confession, or atonement. Not every kind of animal sacrifice was meant for taking away sin. The blood of the Passover lamb was meant as a sign for God. God wanted to familiarize his people with the concepts of sacrifice and blood atonement. Just one, because one day their lives would depend on it. It was, just a, it, was, it was just a matter of making a mark on a house, or if it was just a matter of making a mark on a house, it would not have been necessary to use an unblemished lamb, one that is fit for sacrifice, or even to use blood at all. The ritual of the lamb's blood at Passover provided Israel with a marvelous objective lesson to prepare us for the understanding of the atoning work of Yeshua. Passover has messianic significance. The Messiah himself obligated us to keep the Passover in remembrance of him. He said that in Luke 22:19, do this in remembrance of me. Did he have in mind only the breaking of bread and the drinking of the fruit of the vine when he made that statement? No. He issued that directive to his disciples within the larger context of the annual Passover celebration. The commandment to do this in remembrance of me or in the remembrance of Yeshua was not merely a commandment to take a cup and bread. The specific this to which Yeshua referred was Passover and the Seder meal. He did not take only one cup. He shared four cups with his disciples. He did not break just any bread. He broke unleavened matzah with his disciples. If we desire to really do this in remembrance of our master Yeshua as he commands us, we cannot do less than the whole this, and that is the whole seven-day festival of Pesach, not just the Seder meal and not just a cup and, a bre and bread. This includes the commandment of casting out the leaven from our homes on the 14th day of the month, the commandment of keeping a Passover Seder on the eve of the 15th day of the month, the commandment of eating no leavened bread for seven days, and the commandment of keeping the first and the last days as festival Shabbats. The authentic cup and the bread of the master comes only in the context of Passover. 
Don't panic about this. Just learn a little bit at a time as you go through it if you haven't been going through it before. Keeping Passover is a privilege. It's not a burden. Jewish and non-Jewish believers both have the privilege of keeping Passover in remembrance, of our, in remembrance of the great salvation that God gave us and of the great salvation of Yeshua, the Lamb of God. One of the reasons that it is so difficult to share the gospel with unbelievers today is that they are unfamiliar with the story of Passover and the concepts of sacrificial substitution and blood atonement. Point to be made here. The whole story of the gospel is here in the Torah. The story of the Passover lamb is the foundation for understanding the gospel. Just as the Passover lamb needed to be unblemished and flawless, we need a sinless substitute to take our place in judgment. Just as the blood markings protected everyone in the house, we need to take shelter under the spilled blood of Messiah. Just as the firstborn of those who did not prepare a Passover lamb were struck down, so too those outside of Messiah are without hope. The Passover lamb was the avenue of escape that God provided us and is the avenue of escape that God provided us for his people Egypt from the devastating 10th plague. And it was not just for the Hebrews. Had the Egyptians sacrificed a lamb according to the instructions and applied the blood on their doorpost of their houses, they too would have been spared. The sacrificial death of Yeshua is the avenue of escape that God has provided to spare us from condemnation and eternal death. One need not be Jewish to benefit. One only needs to be under the blood of Yeshua. The celebration of Passover commemorates the historical redemption of the Jewish people from the servitude of Egypt, and it anticipates the final messianic redemption for which the Jewish people still wait. Many secular Jews who do not otherwise observe Sabbath or holy days continue to keep Passover as a last vestige of their religious heritage. Sort of like in Christianity, they only do Easter, right? The Jews are with, like that with Passover, at least the ones that aren't um, regularly faithful. The Passover contains within it a spark of hope for the Jewish soul, a promise of what is to come. The Passover story with its themes of freedom from bondage and tyranny has universal application. Afflicted people from around the world have found hope in the story of Passover. Thanks to the gospel, Christians are more familiar with the Passover festival than any other biblical holy day. Passover means more than rituals and symbolism. It speaks to us of the death and resurrection of the master and the great salvation of human souls. There are many details of Yeshua's experience as our Passover lamb that parallel the Passover lamb rituals detailed in Exodus 12, 3 through 12. Tim Haig has great commentary on this that will be studied by Rabbi Renee's class later today. But the Lord declared that the Jewish people are to celebrate the festival of Passover annually as a permanent ordinance. The term permanent ordinance translates to Hebrew, kuchat olam, which is eternal statute. It describes a commandment that will never be revoked. In other words, the Lord said this commandment will be in force forever. In Exodus 12:15, we learn of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb in Egypt was like training for the Israelites. 
It prepared the children, children of Israel to better appreciate the temple ritual that God would teach them later. It prepared them to understand the efficacy of Yeshua's suffering and death. The Lord instituted a regimen of repetition by commanding the Israelites to commemorate Passover sacrifice every year. He commanded them to annually sacrifice a lamb in remembrance of the lambs they sacrificed in Egypt. The blood of that lamb was no longer to be applied to their doorpost. Instead, it was to be applied to the altar in God's temple in Jerusalem. Or before that, into the, um, um, the tabernacle. So long as the temple in Jerusalem was standing, the Jewish people brought sacrificial lambs to God's altar on the anniversary of the day that their ancestors sacrificed the lambs in Egypt. Today, lamb is not served at Passover because sacrifices cannot be made without a temple. However, the other ritual foods are still eaten at the Passover meal. In Messianic Judaism, we begin preparing for Passover several weeks before the festival begins by cleaning our homes in order to thoroughly remove any leaven and leaven items. What is leaven? For seven days, it says you are to eat matzah on the first day. Remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats hummets, leavened bread, from the first to the seventh day is to be cut off from Israel. The Torah uses three terms in Exodus, matzah, unleavened bread, seor, which is leaven, and chametz, which is leavened bread. These translations can be misleading. The Hebrew terms do not refer to leaven or leavening in a sense that we use the word today. In ancient times, as well as in bread such as sourdough today, bread could be leavened just by allowing the dough to sit for a little period of time. Microbial leavening agents begin working in the bread dough even though no yeast has been intentionally added. Comets refers to products made of certain kinds of grain that we have come in contact with water, that have come in contact with water and are allowed to sit for a period of time without being cooked. Comets could be vinegar or things that are sour. The Hebrew word comets does not imply anything about the fullness or the softness of food. This is one area where our English language leads us astray. Hummets can take many forms, not just fluffy bread, but also noodles and cookies or even some kind of drinks. Seor refers to an inedible lump of starter dough that contains a high concentration of yeast. Seor is used to expedite fermentation in the process of a new batch of dough. However, yeast itself is not hummets or seor. By itself, it is an uncellular fungus that is very common in the environment, and it can be used for both foods that are hummets and those that are not. Matzah, as we all know, is a flat bread which is made of flour and water, baked quickly at a high temperature. This ends the biochemical process that would otherwise make it hummets. It's also pretty plain to eat. Hummets is limited to grain products, which is borne out by the fact that wine and wine vinegar are present and consumed during Passover in the Gospels. That makes sense because it was bread making at the time of the Exodus that led to the prohibition of hummets. Bread as it was known to the ancient Israelites could be made in five types of grain, of five types of grain, wheat, barley, spelt, oats, and rye. One might ask, is it really reasonable to limit hummets to those five grains? After all, there are other biologically similar cereal grains in which fermentation can also occur, such as corn or rice. 
Ashkenazic customs places those grains along with legumes and certain other foods in a different category called kitin or kitniyot. Certain Jewish communities choose to avoid kitniyot and in addition to hametz because they could easily be confused, but not because of an explicit command of the Torah. It's the difference between Ashkenazic and Sephardic on their uh, rules. That's why Ashkenazis can eat corn or corn chips during, the, during, during Passover. Jewish law defines hummets as any of the five types of grain that has been combined with water and has been allowed to sit longer than 18 minutes before being cooked. This means that many foods that you might consider that you might not expect are hummocks, such as noodles, crackers, cookies, fluffy loaves of bread, pitas, tortillas, and any grain product in your house that's not labeled kosher for Passover. Yogurts, natural sauerkraut, and bacon soda are permitted. In Torah, hummets, fermentation, and decomposition all symbolize morality and death. In apostolic teaching, Seor and Hametz can represent hypocrisy, boasting, sexual immorality, malice, wickedness, and false teaching. Hasidic teaching uses Hametz to symbolize pride, haughtiness, and the immoral and heretical thoughts of a fermented mind. The command to not eat anything leaven means that a person cannot eat any food that contains any amount of Hametz even if the hummus constitutes only a small ingredient. This commandment applies to all Jewish men and women in all places. God-fearing Gentile believers keep the commandment to fulfill master's the master's injunction to keep the Passover in remembrance of him. Hummus lurks in most processed food. The common ingredient, vinegar, is considered hummus because grain vinegar is fermented. It's a fermented grain product. Ketchup and mustard are examples of grain vinegar products. Other vinegars, such as cider or wine, are not prohibited, as long as they are not combined with grain vinegar. Many alcohols are also produced with fermenting grain. Beer and many spirits are thus prohibited. Alcohols not made from grain, such as wine from grapes, are not prohibited. The safest way to know if anything is kosher for Passover is the reliable kosher for Passover certification that appears on packages. The entire festival is a time of spiritual renewal, a time to reflect on our spiritual rebirth and the work of Messiah on our behalf. It is a time for families to reconnect and for disciples to recommit. The festival is supercharged by the joy of resurrection. By celebrating Passover, we are proclaiming the Master's death and resurrection until he comes. There are two additional Sabbaths in the middle of Passover. These two special Sabbaths bracket the seven days of Passover, the 15th and the 21st day of Nisan. In Jewish terminology, a special festival Sabbath is called a Yom Tov, that is, holiday. The Torah commands the community of Israel to hold a holy assembly on each Yom Tov. The Holy Assembly refers to a sacrificial service in the temple. In the diaspora, Jewish custom doubles the Yom Tov Shabbats to ensure against calendar discrepancies. Therefore, in the diaspora, Jews hallow Nisan on the 15th, 16th, and the 21st and the 21st as special Shabbats or Sabbaths. There are also the Sabbath that falls between the two 
Yom Tov Sabbath. And that is also called a special Shabbat, and that Shabbat is called Shabbat Kol Hamoed. And there's two of those, Shabbat Kol Hamoed uh, Pesach and Shabbat Kol Hamoed Sukkot, because you have that, that Shabbat that will fall during both of those seven-day festivals. In Exodus 12:38, it describes this mixed multitude that left Egypt with the Israelites. A mixed multitude, a mixed crowd also went up with them, as well as livestock in large numbers, both flocks and herds. The Torah states that a mixed multitude left Egypt along with the children of Israel. One of the prominent disciples of um, Chabad is a guy, is a gentleman by the name of Rabbi, Rabbi Menachim Schneerson. I hope I said that right. He's, he's called Lubavitch, or short for, they, they, or they would use a short term, they just called him Rebbe. He used to invite Jews and Gentiles into his home, even though he was Jewish. And he was, you know, of Kabad, which means he was probably Hasidic. And the Jewish people would ask him, why do you do that? They would, like, look at him strangely and criticize him for doing that. And he would say, look, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So he included them with, with him, just as Moses had during the Exodus. Gentiles have been a part of the nation of Israel from the very beginning. In Exodus 12, 39, they're leaving Egypt. The Torah explains the significance of unleavened matzah bread in that the children of Israel did not have time to, leave their, to let their bread rise before they had to leave Egypt. They were in such a hurry that they only had time to bake the dough before leaving. To commemorate the Exodus, leaven is removed at the time of Passover, and we eat matzah bread for seven days. When the children of Israel left Egypt, they were leaving behind a culture that had become that they'd become part of for over 400 years. While in Egypt they had absorbed much of the wickedness and idolatry of the Egyptian society, the unleavened bread symbolized a new beginning. They were starting over. In a spiritual sense, we leave Egypt when Messiah saves us. That's what it means to be born again. It is a matter of starting over. What we when we become believers, we are supposed to die of our old ways in our old life and begin a new life as new creatures. The leaven in our lives comes in a variety of disguises. It may be certain entertainments, amusements, vices, habits, or social circles. Paul suggests it may lie in the wicked and malicious attitudes of our hearts. Passover is an important time to break with our past and start over as new creatures in Messiah. When the final redemption comes, it will also come speedily, but the exiles of Israel will not have to rush off as people did when they leave Egypt. 430 years, it says, in Exodus 12, 40, 41, the time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the day, all the divisions of Adonai left the land of Egypt. 430 years from what very day? Rashi demonstrated that the genealogy of Exodus 6, 13-25 allows for a maximum of only 360 years. And in actuality, it was a much shorter time that they spent in Israel, closer to 200, I mean in Egypt, closer to 200 to 250 years. There is the belief 
that the 400-year period began with the birth of Isaac, not with the descent into Egypt. In that case, the 430 years mentioned in Exodus 12, 40-41 refer to the length of time since Abraham received the 400-year promise in Genesis 15:13. The 30-year discrepancy represents the time that elapsed, elapsed between the giving of the promises in that particular part of Exodus, or being of Genesis, and the birth of Isaac, Abraham's seed. In the book of Galatians, Paul, Shaul, agrees with Rashi's interpretations. In Galatians 3, 16-17, it says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. What I am saying is this, the Torah, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. There are mitzvahs in our um, Passover this week. As I said, there's like nine of them. I'm running out of time, so I may not have time to cover all these, but I'll cover a couple of them. First one is uh, Exodus 12:43. Adonai said to Moshe and Aaron, mitzvah is a commandment for those of you that don't know. This is the regulation of the Pesach lamb. No foreigner is to eat it, it says. The Torah offers several stipulations regarding who may eat of the Passover sacrifice and who may not. Non-Jews, sojourners, God-fearing Gentiles, uncircumcised Jews, and apostates are banned from eating the meat of the Passover sacrifice. Sometimes readers misunderstood these laws to indicate that the Torah bans all non-Jews from participating in a Passover Seder. That's not true. The law actually only applies to the Pesach sacrifice itself, not to the festival of Passover or to the participation in a Seder meal. The Torah forbids a foreigner, a ben Nikar, from eating the Passover Pesach sacrifice. Jewish tradition understands this foreigner not as a Gentile, but a Jewish person who is apostatized and became an idolater or an atheist. Since he has removed himself from the covenant and the people, he has become like a foreigner and no longer has a share in the sacrifices of Israel. Not only that, but we only have a sacrifice when there's a temple. So today there are no sac sacrificed lambs to, to eat of or not eat of. The next mitzvah that was in this Torah portion was a God-fearer shall not eat it. It's interesting to learn what a God-fearer is. Neither a traveler nor a hired servant may eat it, it says. The Torah forbids a traveler, sojourner, or ger toshav, from eating of the Passover sacrifice. The sojourner is a non-Jew who resides among the Jewish people, has forsaken idolatry, abides by the laws of Noah, worships the God of Israel, but has not undergone conversion to become Jewish. That basically uh, is the definition of a God-fearer. This class of people is also referred to as partial proselytes, son of Noah, B'nai Noach, and God-fearers. The law to give no part of the Pesach to a God-fearer or only a partial proselyte to eat applies directly to Gentile believers and prohibits them from eating the Passover sacrifice. The law is incumbent upon Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem when the temple and the priesthood are functioning. The law does not prohibit the God-fearing Gentile believers from participating in other aspects of the festival, such as the matzah, bitter herbs, the four cups, or any other of the Seder elements, and the seven days of Passover. 
The laws of not eating the Pesach sacrifice have no real application today, as I said a few minutes ago, because there's no temple. There's another mitzvah, mitzvah. Not to remove the Pesach and not to break a bone of the Pesach. Exodus 12:46. It is to be eaten in one house. You are not to take any of the meat outside the house and you are to not break any of its bones. The meat of the Passover sacrifice could not be carried out of the house where it was served. For example, if the Seder concluded early, the participants could not carry the leftover lamb to another Seder. This law emphasizes the household and the family nature of the Passover sacrifice, a remembrance of the original Passover in Egypt when Moses said to the children of Israel, none of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning. Jewish tradition is uncertain about the reason for the prohibition to not break the bone of the Pesach. Mamamides explains, the prohibition on breaking any of the bones of the Pesach is a remembrance of the haste with which the children of Israel had to eat the meal. They did not have time to break the bones. They had to roast it whole. Another opinion suggests that the breaking of the bones would indicate an insufficient amount of, of food, but the Pesach sacrifice was to be sufficient to, to satisfy all those at the Seder. Neither suggestion seems to hit the mark. The Gospel of John hints toward a messianic interpretation. When the Roman soldiers came to break the legs of the crucified to hasten their death, they found the master had already died. They did not break his legs. And John explains, these, came, these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken in John 19.36. John cites a passage from the Psalms but he seems to have also had the laws of Passover in mind. Um, verse 49 says, The same teaching, law, is to apply equally to the citizen and to the foreigner who live among you. In many translations in the Bible, the word law is used, but the complete Jewish Bible uses the word teaching. The Torah means teaching. In the Torah, we are taught by God his ways and how he expects us to live out our lives. He's given us the gift of life and has provided us with a path to physical, emotional, and spiritual success. In this passage, the Torah says that the same law applies to the native Israelite and to the non-Jewish stranger who dwells among the Jewish people. The one law theology uses this passage to support its claim that the Torah makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles and that all Torah laws apply equally to both Jewish and Gentile believers. That interpretation seems to contradict itself since this passage is specifically about prohibiting non-Jews and uncircumcised people from eating of this Pesach sacrifice. Plainly, the Torah differentiates between Jews and non-Jews just as it differentiates between priest and Levite man and woman, Levitical and non-Levitical. The same law, the same Torah, applies to all of us equally based on who we are. None of the 613 commandments of the Torah apply universally because individuals all fall into their own category. Once a person becomes Jewish or becomes part of the family of Israel, through the belief in the Jewish Messiah, all the laws apply equally to all. There are just some laws that apply only to certain individuals based on who they are and their roles in the community. In other words, if you are not a high priest, 
The law specifically for the high priest do not apply to you. If you are not a woman, the laws of women do not apply to you. There are some laws that only can be followed with a temple in operation. While the temple is not in existence, these laws are suspended until the temple is restored. There is only one Torah, and it equally applies to all peoples, Jew and Gentile, circumcised and uncircumcised. Believers are all welcome at the Seder table. They should all partake of the matzah, the bitter herbs, the four cups, and the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread with a glad heart. We should appreciate the significance of this event every year. We can all share in and rejoice in our common Passover lamb, Yeshua. When Messiah comes again, another great exodus will occur. Israel's exodus from exile among the nations. Passover reminds us that the future of that the future is the messianic redemption. The prophets say that the ingathering of exiles from nations in the final redemption will eclipse the memory of the exodus from Egypt. For that reason, every Passover Seder concludes with these optimistic words. Next year in Jerusalem. Even Seders conducted in Jerusalem conclude with these happy words. Next year in New Jerusalem. Isn't that something? So that's my teaching for today. Thank you all very much for, uh, for listening to it. Um, Shavua Tov, when, whenever we do get to the point of uh, doing Passover. Um, so let's, uh, we've got 15 minutes or so before the service. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then we can have some fellowship time. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for... Um, for penetrating our hearts with your word. Father, I pray that each of us, as we leave this place after this service today and our classes today and all the things that we do today, that when we go out into the world, everyone sees you in us. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen.